Well, this morning, it's good to be back, and it's good to be back in the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue uh, this morning in chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. This is a companion to what we looked at uh, three weeks ago in verses 1 through 10. And we'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later. Uh, But before us this morning, Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 18. As always, this is the very living word of our living God. Uh, Let's hear it and uh, take it to heart. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Once again, may God bless the reading of his holy, infallible, and inerrant word and apply it to our hearts and minds here this morning. As we come before the word, uh, let me once again pray for us. Father in heaven, bless us as we come before your word. We ask Uh, that you would fulfill your own promise, that when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty, that instead it accomplishes everything that you purpose for it, that it is successful in everything for which you have sent it out. For us, again, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear all that you would have us learn, see and hear from your word this morning, and in so doing, make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is our desire to walk in that light and along that path. All this, Father, as always, we ask in the precious and matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, as we get here to chapter 10 in Hebrews, we have in the first 18 verses uh, kind of a summary that the author is, is making partway through this kind of written letter sermon. And we're not hearing a whole lot of things that we haven't heard before in previous chapters, going back really to, I think, the end of chapter 6, where he began by introducing the idea that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who has gone behind the curtain into the very presence of God himself, the most holy place, and done that on our behalf. And so since the end of 6, all the way through 7, 8, 9, and now into 10, the author has been taking us beyond what he called elementary doctrine at the beginning of chapter 6 so that we won't become sluggish, so that we won't become uh, tired and, and weak and weary in our faith. And what has he shown us? He's shown us Jesus as a high priest greater than all of the Old Testament high priests, the whole priesthood itself. He's shown us Jesus as a sacrifice greater than any of the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus as a mediator who brings a better covenant than the Old Covenant. In fact, he brings the promised new covenant. 
We see him presenting Jesus to us as one who ministers in a better tent, the real tent, the real home, the real presence of God, rather than, well, something that's just a model, just a copy, made by human hands. And in so doing, he accomplishes the work of redemption for his people, satisfies the wrath of God for sin once and for all, not having to repeatedly offer sacrifices like the Old Testament priests. So in terms of those kinds of themes, the author's not really saying a whole lot new in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 10. He's saying it a little bit differently, and he's bringing in a couple interesting new themes. In 1 to 10, he introduced a new prophecy to help bolster his argument from Psalm 40. And what he was focusing on last time in the first 10 verses is the consequences, the, the, the radical, glorious implications of the work that Christ has done for us. And we saw and we celebrated this amazing truth that because of what Christ has done, we are not guilty. And that's a very freeing and powerful thing for us to realize. There is no longer any guilt. No guilt because of our sin. Because the penalty has already been paid by Jesus on the cross. We're ashamed for sin, of course. We struggle with sin. We don't like our sin. We want it to go away. We're frustrated by it. And we know now in a way we didn't know before how terrible and awful and wicked sin is. But the Christian life is not one, and I think it is this way for so many in their minds, maybe subconsciously, maybe overtly. But so many Christians think, oh, I sinned, now I'm guilty. I need to seek forgiveness, now I'm not guilty. Oh, I sinned, now I'm guilty. Now I need to seek forgiveness, now I'm not guilty. That is not the Christian life. We are not guilty. If you have repented and put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ as your Savior, there is no longer, as the author puts it in the first ten verses, no longer any consciousness of sin, or as I love the way the NIV puts it, I think it's actually very accurate, we no longer feel guilty because of our sin. And this echoes what we know elsewhere from Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, verse 36, those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. Lay hold of that, grasp that, believe it, take it to heart. We are not guilty. <clears throat> well, verses 11 to 18 use again the same themes to introduce another very practical and very radical truth, and that is you are forgiven. Not partially, not provisionally, not if this, then forgiven, you are forgiven. Period. Done. By grace and through faith in Christ Jesus. So by verse 18, the author has rounded out a very long section on doctrine with a very practical application. You are forgiven. Now in verse 19, as we'll see Lord willing next week, he begins a therefore that talks about how to live our lives in response to this. But in verse 18, he makes a powerful, wonderful point. 
Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Was there no longer any offering for sin? No, because Christ offered it once for all. Therefore, there is no more need for forgiveness. That's a radical claim on the part of our author. If there's no more offering, there's no more forgiveness needed. Because forgiveness is given completely, utterly, without hesitation, without holding back by God in and through Christ. So again, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you are forgiven. You have God's forgiveness, and you can never lose that forgiveness. It's the promise that the author quotes in here. Your sins and your lawless deeds, he does not remember. Why? Because he promised not to remember them. And our God keeps his promises. If he said he will not remember them, he will not remember them. And in fact, he does not remember them. So I want to look at how the author presents this idea in these verses this morning. And then after doing that, I think there are three little themes that kind of weave their way in and out of these verses that are, are helpful to look at as well. One is, we see here the work of the Trinity. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit applying accomplishing and applying this salvation for us. There's an interesting interplay, the second idea or theme, between the the already finished, accomplished work of Jesus for us and the ongoing work that needs to be done in us. Uh, A little bit of an interesting dichotomy, if you will. And then thirdly, um, there's a reason for confidence in these verses. Why can we be confident? Why can we be so bold about saying we are not guilty, but especially that we are forgiven? So those three ideas. Let's look at how the author fleshes this out in these these, uh, eight verses. Again, he's building to what I think we should see as an utterly radical claim about uh, forgiveness in verse 18. Where there is such a forgiveness of sins, no longer is there an offering for sin. And that's what the author's been teaching us for all these chapters. The repetitive nature of the Old Testament sacrifices, annually, daily, time and time and time again, by one priest after another, through all their generations, this repetition is clear evidence, according to the author, that these sacrifices are weak, insufficient, useless. So there should be an expectation built into God's people of something better, something that will take care of sin once and for all. And that's the truth that the author is building to and celebrating in these chapters. Verses 11 to 14, he shows us again a contrast that we've seen before, but introduces a nice little, kind of a subtle uh, new comparison. Again, he points us to the Old Testament priests who repeatedly, daily, offer the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And then in verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of God. So that contrast, the priests who do it daily, it's never effective, but Christ once for all time does it. But did you see the new little twist in there? How does the priest do his work? Standing. We read in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10 passage, the Levites are called to stand before the Lord and do their work. What does Christ do? When he's done, he sits down. He sits down. Why? Because it's done. It's accomplished. It's over. He no longer stands. He sits down. The work is accomplished. God's law obeyed for us. The wrath of God paid for in his death on the cross. His sacrifice offered to God in that holy place behind the true curtain. Again, not an earthly copy, not a temple made by human hands. Jesus sits because his high priestly work is done. He does not stand up again to do it again because he doesn't have to. That's a powerful image. He sits because the work is done. We've talked about sitting before in other contexts. Here it's a visible, figurative demonstration that the work is done and accomplished. So when he says you're not guilty, you are not guilty. When he says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. It's done. Verse 14, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And in verse 13, he echoes Psalm 110, and also there's echoes of Philippians 2. Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So he's not inactive while he's sitting. We shouldn't think of Jesus as sitting down and being passive. He's waiting actively, for one, for his enemies to be defeated, but he also, as we know, is making intercession on our behalf before the Father, continually pleading on our behalf for us, before the Father. But there's anticipation as he waits for the day that is coming, surely coming, when his enemies are made his footstool, when his enemies are finally, once for all, defeated and the kingdom is consummated. What a contrast between the priests who stand repeatedly doing over and over again and Christ who's just sat down because it's done. It's over. Verses 15 to 17 remind us of Jeremiah's prophecy again in Jeremiah 31. The new covenant and its promises and he focuses here again on the reality of the law written on our hearts the law written on our minds. We know the law. We love the law. We want to do the law. It's no longer a law that accuses, but one that leads us, teaches us, guides us, because it can no longer condemn us. Christ has taken care of that on our behalf. But also this glorious promise in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Again, we need to grasp hold of this and and cling to this promise. Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? Then God does not remember your sins. 
your lawless deeds, and that's what they are, he remembers no more. That's mind-boggling. That's incredible. But that's true for every believer in Jesus Christ. Why is it true? Because where sins have been forgiven, it implies something. The offering has been made. The offering for sin has been made, and that's what Christ has done. There's no longer any offering because Christ Jesus did it once and for all. Sat down, done, completed, finished. So take this truth to heart. You are forgiven. (laughs) Not will be forgiven. Not might be if you do X, Y, Z, religious tasks. You are forgiven by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone. No guilt. What did we sing three weeks ago? No guilt in life, no fear in death. That's true. You are forgiven. Well, how does this work itself out? There are three themes, as I said, floating through these verses. The one thing that I noticed that I thought is is a little bit wonderful and, and a little bit subtle as well is this idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working for our salvation, to accomplish the salvation and to apply it to us. It's clear the Son is, is involved. He's mentioned there in verse 12, um, and, and of course by, by reference elsewhere or inference elsewhere, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice, and he sat down. He accomplished it. It's done. It's clear that the Father is there because he's the one to whom the sacrifice is offered and he's the one that Christ sits down next to. The Son goes into the presence of the Father and offers himself for us. Sits down at the right hand of the Father. But also the author makes this wonderful little reference in verse 15 to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us of these truths, these glorious, wonderful truths. So Father is involved as the one forgiving. Christ is involved as the one who accomplishes and earns that forgiveness for his people. And the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, testifies of these truths to us. Why does that matter? Well, for one thing, I think it it reminds us of the the truth of the Trinity, but also reminds us of of the fact that it's something to, to celebrate and glory in be happy for, uh, and give praise to God for. All three actively involved in our salvation. We, we tend to sometimes focus on Christ naturally because he's a human like us. Sometimes we think of the Father and sometimes too often we think of him as judge rather as the one who made this all happen because he loved us with a great love and was rich in mercy toward us. But we also forget most of all that what's... The, What do they call it? The forgotten member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It's him who reveals it to us. It's him who testifies of these truths to us. Without the Holy Spirit working in us, we don't see these things. We don't understand them. We don't learn them. Non-Christians read the same words we do and just don't get it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness to us can't leave out any of the persons of the Trinity. Always good to be reminded of the Trinity, I think, anyway, because the Trinity is always under attack as a doctrine. 
So forgiveness is yours because the Father promised it and gave it, because the Son earned it and accomplished it for you, and because the Holy Spirit revealed it to you and testifies to it over and over again. The second truth that's in here, and, and probably, I hope, <laughs> many of you are asking a question. If forgiveness is a done deal, why do we keep asking for it? Why keep asking for forgiveness if, if it's accomplished and done? Why not just sit back and, and rest and, and celebrate it? And that's a great question. And it points us to one of the interesting and important dynamics in, in our faith and in Scripture and in our salvation. The, the technical way we talk about it is to call it the already, not yet uh, distinction or, or difference or, or work in our faith. The simple way to put it is, when it comes to our salvation, some things are done, some things are still being done <laughs> for us. And sometimes, in fact, often those things uh, go together and overlap. An easy example is in the area of holiness, of righteousness. We know by grace and through faith we are counted as righteous before God in His sight. Galatians and other places remind us that just like Abraham, our father, we believe and it's credited to us as righteousness. God looks at us as righteous, as holy before Him, Christ's obedience. His righteousness credited to our account. We are righteous right now before God. We call it justification. And yet we still have this daily existential struggle with sin. I do the things I know I shouldn't. I don't do the things I know that I should. We read scripture and it reveals new sin to us that we <laughs> that now we get frustrated. Uh, another thing uh, to hate in myself, another thing to work on. Um, that ongoing struggle with sin, dying to sin and living to righteousness, the struggle to do those things that we know we should and avoid the things that we know we shouldn't do, continues. And it's a frustration for us. But we also know that more and more and more as Christ works in us through the Holy Spirit and through His Word, we do grow in holiness. I've said this before. If you've walked with Christ for any number of years, you're not the same person you were five years ago, ten years ago. You're not. And five years from now, ten years from now, Lord willing, uh, should we live that long, you will not be the same person you are today. God works holiness in us. Slowly but surely, one of the old Reformed confessions says, we make very little progress in this life. And sometimes that feels painfully true. Uh, But we do make progress sanctification, already justified, already right with God, already holy in His sight, at the same time, not yet perfected, not yet glorified as we will be when Christ comes again at the last day. So there's that tension. There's a similar thing, I think, with forgiveness. We are already forgiven, but we continue to sin. We continue to offend God with our sins. We continue to... uh, to be ashamed of our sin. And so we, the reason we seek forgiveness is not because we need forgiveness again, but to claim and to remind ourselves of the forgiveness that is already ours in Christ. To turn our hearts to that and to, to lay hold of it again, to cling to the old rugged cross, as the old hymn says. 
And so that's part of what's going on here in this chapter. And we get little hints of it in, uh, in verse 12, where Christ has sat down, but he's not doing nothing. He's still active. So there's an already accomplishment to his work, but there's a yet to be finished of his work. He has to come again. And, and the wonderful, perplexing language in verse 14. <laughs> By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There it is right there. You have been perfected for all time, but you are being sanctified. This is the mystery of Christ's work of salvation in us. You have been forgiven for all time. You are being forgiven in Christ time and time and time again. Our sins are remembered no more. We seek forgiveness to remind ourselves, to lay hold again to that forgiveness that is ours in Christ. We resolve to confess our sins. He immediately forgives them. This leads to the third idea here in these verses that I think is here. And that is the author is giving us reason for confidence. If we don't understand these things well, if we don't take them to heart, uh, it, it, can, it can be easy to despair. It can be easy to, to think, I'll never get there. I'll never make it. I, just give up. Just give up hope. I've known people who struggled with sin and, and heard them say to me, God could never love someone like me. God could never forgive my sins. And I just think, oh, please understand the forgiveness that is yours. So the author gives us reason for confidence to remember that our sins are forgiven once for all, but that when we go to God, he does dismiss our sins as far as the east is from the west. That confidence should come from the things we've been learning about, Jesus as superior, a superior prophet, high priest, sacrifice, and all those other things. But it also comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is a part of what the author is saying to us in verse 15. We can have confidence because the Holy Spirit bears witness of these truths to us. And, and the way the author says it, and proves it or illustrates it is by quoting from Jeremiah, a prophet who lived 2,400, 2,500 years ago. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us by saying through Jeremiah to us today, I will write my law in your hearts, write my law in your minds, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. The Holy Spirit says that to us, to you, to me, today. Think about that. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit bore witness 2,500 years ago. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit will bear witness. He does now, actively. In the present, always, continually. People today want to hear God. People today want to hear the Holy Spirit. It's very simple. <laughs> pick, up, pick up your Bible and read it. God is speaking. 
every time you pick up your Bible and read it. God is speaking every time you hear the word read. God is speaking. The Holy Spirit is speaking actively, presently, right here, right now, in the present, giving you a true word from God. So we don't need these goofy prophetic words. We don't need to walk in the prophetic, whatever the term is now today. The Holy Spirit speaks now, actively, presently, to us, to his people. God himself is saying, I am speaking to you. I am bearing witness of these truths. And what is he saying to us? I don't remember your sins. I don't remember your lawless deeds. I've written my law not on two tablets of stone put in a box of acacia wood. I've written my law on your heart and on your mind. You no longer have to be taught. I teach you. God himself is saying these things. Not me. Not the author of Hebrews. God himself is speaking to his people. You are forgiven. So don't believe me. (laughs) Believe God. And that should be a source of comfort. And of course there's a practical outgrowth of this. We'll see more in the coming verses and chapters. We saw it in our New Testament reading, the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18. If God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. That's not optional. If God has forgiven you already, done completely, every sin, even those you haven't committed yet, then how can you and I withhold forgiveness from others? Peter, in that passage in Matthew 18, wants to know how many times you should forgive. As many as seven? That's a lot, in Peter's mind. Jesus' answer isn't about the number. People debate, is it 49, 7 times 7? Is it 70 times 7? It's not about the number. It's about the magnitude. (laughs) How often should we forgive? Every time they ask. Every single time. Because think about this. The magnitude of God's forgiveness of our sins, yours and mine, is staggering. Think of the vast number of sins You and I commit (laughs) hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, year after year after year after year. They're countless. God has forgiven them all. He doesn't remember them. He counts them against you no more. If we have that staggering forgiveness from God, it would be miserly of us to withhold forgiveness from others, just like that servant in Jesus' parable. Not to forgive would make us like that lousy, unforgiving, wicked servant who's put in prison until he pays the debt. And what's Jesus' warning? You'll be like him if you don't forgive. So there's a practical side of this as well. You've been forgiven? Forgive. Be forgiving people. And so I, there's, there's a, a nice little two-part theme that I see here to conclude with. One, have confidence, utter, unshakable, unbreakable confidence 
and the forgiveness that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. You are not guilty. You are forgiven. Secondly, that should have some practical outworking. Have compassion for those who sin against you. That basic template, I think, covers Hebrews. The forgiveness that is ours in Christ, the confidence that we can have because he is superior to every other, everything that's ever came along before, confidence, and then compassion in the rest of the book. And Lord willing, we'll look at that a little bit in the weeks to come. But it's also a nice template for the Christian life, not just the book of Hebrews. Be confident in Christ. Be compassionate to others. Be confident. Be compassionate. And may that be true for all of us here this morning. We can't do it in our own strength, and so we need the faith and the strength that Christ provides to us. May that be true. May that be so. And Christian, do be confident. And do be compassionate. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, I do ask that you would help us be confident. There are all sorts of things that would assail us and, and cause us to doubt, to fear, uh, to run to what, what can seem to be at the time attractive, other solutions, things that tickle our ears, tickle our fancy. Uh, keep us rooted and grounded and confident in Christ and the promises that you have given to us in him. Pour out your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and understanding of these things so that our confidence is not shaken, but also to equip equip and empower us to be compassionate, forgiving, caring, loving, serving uh, to those around us. Once again, we cannot, cannot do this in our own strength, and so we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom, the understanding, and to equip and enable us to serve you in all the ways that you have called us to do so. Reveal those ways to us. We ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.